May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are the words that St. Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus that we heard read for us in our epistle lesson this morning. In particular, they come to us from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And it's a series of ones that are stressed by St. Paul. In many ways, you could say that, that Paul was big on unity. He knew that the general approach of man's sinful heart is to distinguish oneself over and above others, rather than seeking the unity that exists between us. He wrote to uh, the, the church in Corinth about this in another epistle. They had problems seeking unity there. They argued about who had the best spiritual gifts. They argued who was better because of who baptized them. Some would say, well, I'm better because Peter baptized me. And others would say, well, I'm better because Apollos baptized me. And Jesus' own disciples even thought about those types of things. I mean, James and John. And their mother approached Jesus wondering who could have the best seats in heaven. She comes with them asking Jesus that each of them might sit one on either side of him when he reigns from his throne. Or how about when the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because Jesus told him to sell everything and to follow him. And Matthew then tells us that our good old Peter chimed up and asked the Lord, Well, Lord, we forsook all and followed thee. What shall we have? In other words, what kind of special reward do we get over and above that rich young ruler? And today we see it in our gospel lesson. After Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day, he goes into a supper with the chief Pharisees. And what does he note going on? He notes how they all play games at trying to get to be the one in the honored positions. And so Jesus launches into a teaching about that. And he says, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, but whoever exalts himself shall be abased or humbled. It's the, the natural inclination of a sinful heart to seek oneself, to seek one's own glory, to seek one's own desire. After all, that's what the real first sin was really about too. It was about whether Eve would be happy to remain in perfect relationship with God under perfect submission to him. Or whether Eve would reach out and seize her own desires after listening to the evil one's deception and lie of, go ahead, be like God. And that's been the problem since. So St. Paul's words today about unity and oneness is important to hear. But it's important to hear it, and it's important to embrace and enact it in the right way. Because what we learn is that biblical unity is not the unity that the world puts forth. Our unity is wholly different because its source and its foundation is wholly different. In some respect, you could call Ephesians a book of unity. 
St. Paul mentions unity or oneness and expresses the principle of it a lot in this passage and in the chapters around it. A couple of weeks ago, I think I said that Paul mentioned the word one some eight times in the first six verses of chapter four. And that doesn't include anything in the chapters around it. It begins with the backdrop of Paul writing to a group of Gentile converts. A Gentile was one who didn't have a Jewish background. Gentiles were descent, weren't descendants of Father Abraham. They were heathens. They were heathen outcasts who came to know and to embrace the Lord. And in glancing at some of the other books of the New Testament, like Galatians or the book of Acts, we discover that there was a struggle over the Gentiles of, of how to deal with them. Should they be circumcised like the Jews? Should they have to observe certain diets? Should they have to follow the rules and the regulations of the Jewish law? No doubt Christianity came out of the history of Israel. And those who are of Jewish ancestry would also consider the Gentiles as second-class citizens, if you will. And it's no wonder that God chooses Paul to be the missionary to the Gentiles, is it? I mean, who better than the greatest Jew of them all? The Pharisee of Pharisees, the Rabbi Saul, as his name was before changing to Paul. To be the one to bring the Gentiles into relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And into unity with the Jewish converts. I mean, there's something to be said for the way that God works. So, in light of the fact that this attitude existed in different places... And in light of how the Gentiles themselves might have felt about themselves because of that, Paul writes some encouraging words to them. Paul writes in the whole first part of his epistle about who these converts were. The beginning lifts them up as Paul expresses how in Jesus they are sitting in heavenly places. Their background doesn't matter. Their former lives don't disqualify them. Why? Because... Of God's grace. It is this epistle to the Ephesians that has that infamous verse in the second chapter For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then at the end of the second chapter and into chapter three, Paul explains how both Gentiles and Jewish converts are brought near and made one with each other. He talks about a, a wall of division being torn down. And it's not the wall or the veil of the temple that he's talking about between God and sinful man, but the wall of divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles that believe in Christ. And then in the rest of the epistle, he builds on this and how they're to express this in all of their lives. You express it one to another in the church. You express it in your marriages, you express it with your slaves and servants, or I guess in today's society, you'd say employees or employers. So like most teachings, and like most good sermons, like mine, you know, <laughs> you have a bit of doctrine and explanation in the beginning in order to get the right foundation. And then you move to implication, and then you move to application. In our context... You start with who and what God has done, how that impacts you, and what you then do with that knowledge and that reality and that truth. Now, as I prepared for today, 
I was drawn to verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 4 in particular. And that's not to say that the rest of the verses around these aren't important, because all of Scripture is holy and all of Scripture is the Word of God. But I was drawn to the three things that Paul mentions in verse 5 for today. And these things really do help shape our understanding of Paul's understanding about biblical unity. And it's important, as I said earlier, because biblical unity is not the same as unity talked about in the world. There's a fundamental difference between what the world defines as unity and what the church does. Because at the core of unity sits something completely different. I mean, even Jesus says this. He says, the world's going to hate you. He says, the, the people are going to despise you. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is opposed to the kingdom of this world. So that the unity that the world wants to seek will never be the same as the unity of those who are in Christ. So let's take a look for the next couple of minutes at what St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. And I'm going to read the whole context again, but then we're going to focus on verse 5 alone. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 is what I'm going to read. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And in particular, verse Five, we read, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In these, we discover that biblical unity is a unity that is derived from a common identity, a common belief, and a common submission and service. And if you permit me, I'm going to work backwards in this list. And first we see one baptism. One baptism written here isn't intended to say whether one should only be baptized one time. I mean, some have tried to teach that point with this passage. There are some denominations who say you need to be baptized again, even if you were baptized before. And on the other end of the inside of the argument is the position that once baptized, you don't need to be baptized ever again. You can reaffirm your promises of baptism, but you don't need to be baptized again and again. That's what the Anglican position would be. But St. Paul's point isn't to create a debate over that issue. The emphasis of his one baptism isn't on the quantity of how many times one or may or may not be baptized. The emphasis is on the type of baptism that we each have and the resulting effect of that baptism. There is only one baptism that can wash away one's sins. There is only one baptism that can bring you from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. There is only one baptism that can bring you into relationship with the Lord. And that is the one baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere that this baptism is a death to sin and a resurrection to righteousness. Likewise, he says that because of this, we reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about what our prayer book says when we have a baptism. 
you want to see it or look at it later, it's on page 465 of our prayer book. We pray immediately after the baptism, we receive this child or this person into the congregation of Christ's flock and do sign him or her with the sign of the cross. In token hereafter that he shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and manfully to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil. And to continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant unto his life's end. There's a lot to unpack in that baptismal prayer and statement. And I'm not going to do that this morning. But we see exactly what baptism means. It means belonging to Christ. It is our identity. It is who we are. It is at the core of our existence. We're dead to ourselves and alive in Christ Jesus. And therefore we live to serve him. And so we're united in our identity with those who are dead and alive in Christ as well. We even call them brothers and sisters in Christ. We recognize one who is of the same fold. We we recognize one who is part of the same family, who bears the same cross signed upon our forehead. But such a common identity through one baptism also means confessing the same faith of having a common belief. As resurrected Christians alive in Christ Jesus, we stand for something. We don't simply stand for anything. We stand for the one faith. That baptismal prayer says not to be ashamed to confess Christ crucified. Thus, we're united in the one faith that St. Paul says. We're united by our common belief. The scriptures exhort in the book of Jude... One of those kind of forgotten short books in the back end of the Bible. To hold fast the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now, what exactly is that? Well, the early church laid this out for us and explained it in what we call the creeds. Namely, in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed. But also in the the commonly accepted Athanasian Creed. These are succinct statements of the biblical Christian faith developed and affirmed by the universal church as to the essentials and the substance of the faith. And what do we confess therein? We just did it about, well, 13 minutes ago. We confess the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God, very God of very God. Yet we confess that he's also fully man, conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary without sin. We confess Christ crucified, dead, and buried. We confess that Christ rose again from the dead, not just in spirit, but in body. We confess that Christ ascended to heaven, and that from there he is ruling over his kingdom. We confess that he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. We confess our belief in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We confess our bodily resurrection and we confess our hope of everlasting life. That is the Christian faith. And that is what binds us together as baptized Christians. And finally, we have the words, one Lord. We're united by one Lord. And this is the tough one. 
because it means that biblical unity comes through common submission and service. Let me explain that. Paul elsewhere will describe the church as the body of Christ. And actually in the verses just prior to verse 5 here, Paul says that there is only one body. And the imagery of the body describes how there's many members or parts, but that they all act in concert with the single head. The arms work in concert with the legs, the fingers work in concert with the arms, and so on. And these are all directed in their unified effort by the single head. And in the case of Paul's illustration, the parts of the body are all the members of the church. And the head which directs them, as he says, is Jesus Christ. That's what it is to have Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul is not simply saying that Jesus is God. He's not simply defining the character and the nature of Jesus. He does do that, but it goes beyond that. By confessing Jesus as Lord, it is defining how we act in relation to him as our Lord and as our King. You see, to be baptized into Christ, to believe and assent to certain beliefs in your life, is not the entirety of the Christian's existence. One must acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and must therefore live in submission and service to him. Jesus as Lord means placing your life Placing your actions, placing your everything in submission to the will and mind of Jesus Christ. And our biblical unity comes when we're all serving that one Lord together. As we all seek the will of Christ, as we all seek the glory of Christ, as we all march, if you will, under his banner, as that baptismal prayer says. When we do that, that's what unites us. As we close our time this morning, I want to leave you with the quintessential example and image of biblical unity amongst God's people. It's a picture of that blessed revelation of St. John. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 read this way. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Note, beloved, that this is not just a unity of people because they all got along but a unity that is a result of being centered on and around one thing, the throne of God and the land that sits at the center of them. You see, unity isn't about niceties. Unity isn't simply about fellowship. Unity isn't just about getting along. Unity isn't simply about accepting what everyone wants or thinks. Or in today's day and age, unity isn't simply about avoiding your response to certain Facebook posts that you don't like. That's what the world says unity is. And we do do some of those things. I mean, we're nice, or we ought to be nice. We do extend a hand of fellowship. We do reach out to our enemies. We do help provide for those in need. But our unity, our oneness, 
is one of heart and soul and mind, each embracing the truth of who Jesus Christ is and his cross, such that through our common life, through our common praise, through our common belief, through our common purpose, through our common service, we bring glory and honor to him. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.